Hey, Lily. This is an exciting week. Why is that, Randy? Are you finally making sourdough? Oh, God, no, I wish. I'm a terrible baker. There's three things I'm excited for, though. Okay, let me guess. Is one that there's only seven sleeps until World Product Day? Oh, yeah, that's it. We've got something fun planned for our episode next week, and there's some great events planned for that evening wherever you might live. Yes, and in Bristol, we've joined up with Exeter, and we have a very special guest. It's the one and only Marty Kagan. And another very special guest <laughs> is the one and only Randy Silver, joining us for a, a special In the Ether episode. Yes, that's right. Marty is definitely my opening act, of course. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'm also doing proper speaking at the Berlin and Ireland events. And there's some amazing people at other ones. I know Melissa Perry and Kate Lido, who's coming up on the podcast soon, and Gibson Biddle and Roman Pickler and so many, many more are going to be speaking at events all around the world. It's definitely going to be lots of stuff not to be missed. So check out worldproductday.com to see all of the events. Okay, so is number two our guest this week? Ooh, lucky guess. Absolutely, yeah. I've been looking forward to having Julia Whitney on for absolutely ages. And she was great. We've all been in situations where it's been hard to get a group of people to make a decision. And she's got some really good ways to crack that problem. She sure does. And I could have used that with the third thing I'm excited about. I published a book this week. It's called What Do We Do Now? A Product Manager's Guide to Strategy in the Time of COVID-19. It's a really quick read and all the profits go to relief efforts. And it's available now on all ebook platforms. I'm so excited about this, but you know, how am I going to get a signed copy if it's an ebook? <laughs> we'll figure it out for you. <laughs> and just tell me, why did you need Julia's advice for this? Oh, yeah. Uh, deciding on a title is hard. I can't tell you how many variations we went through before finalizing on this one. Next time, I'm definitely using Julia's advice. But for now, let's just go ahead and share her advice with everyone. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Julia, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's really lovely to speak to you after our slight technical hitch at the start. <laughs> That's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great if you could give us a real quick intro into who you are and, and what you do. Sure, sure. So I uh, led design teams for a long time. So user experience and design teams for, for a really long time, in particular in the space in the media space, in the digital media space. Um, I worked for public broadcasting in the States and uh, at the BBC here in the UK. And 
gradually as I got, so I led a team. Well, my latest role at the BBC was as a leader of a team of 150 user experience and design professionals. And um, I started to get really interested in the design of teams and the design of development and, um, you know, getting people to perform better and better, reach their potential, either individually or as groups. And so I started turning my attention more and more to coaching. And then eventually I decided to become an executive coach. And so now I coach leaders who, you know, do jobs similar to what I did. And um, in the product space, in the, you know, the technology space and the, um, and the design leadership space as well. So that's what I do. That sounds amazing. And leading a team of how many? 150 design. Yeah. That's, that must have been quite a feat. It was quite a feat, actually. It was quite a feat, but it was also really one of the most tremendous experiences of my entire career. It was an incredible opportunity. There were a great group of people. Mm. And it was one of those chances, you know, like earlier in my career, I would see, you know, more senior leaders than I do things um, in ways that I liked or in ways that I didn't like. And it was a great, great opportunity to create the kind of culture that I would want to work in, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah, so that, so that was a, that was a major wonderful aspect of the job. It was really great. And one of the things you've talked about recently in, um, in a talk that you've done is how we get groups making decisions um, in a in a good way. <laughs> exactly. Groups make decisions all the time. It's just <laughs> the quality of those decisions. Yeah, exactly. So what kind of inspired you to, to cover this topic? You know, what's your personal experience with group decision making? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so um, that's a great question. I love that question. Um, so my personal experience with group decision making. So I, I came to it. it what, what inspired me to choose that as a topic was um, the amount of groups that I do some coaching with or leaders who lead groups that I coach um, who struggle with the same things uh, around leading those groups in group decision making. Some of the questions that leaders I coach have have to do with, you know, how much do I empower the team to make certain decisions? Um, you know, so that's one set of things. But other uh, leaders struggle with other things like, um, and, and these were, so, and I saw the same problems crop up over and over again. So one of the problems that crops up um, is, well, we keep, coming together and seemingly making a decision and then nothing happens. That's a classic. <laughs> Have you all yep. come across that? Never. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, which is so, which is such an interesting one. And, um, and then the other one is the kind of like, well, I don't understand. We all, you know, we all seem to be agreeing and then we made the decision and we followed it through and it was a disaster. And then afterwards everybody was telling me, that they kind of had doubts about it. Why didn't they tell me the, in the first place? You know, mm. so that's mm. another that's another thing that I commonly see. Um, yeah. And does it tend to be leaders that you work with? Because it's if it's a group decision 
making? You know, is it the group that's all responsible for the good or bad decision making? Or is it the leader that's kind of responsible for, I guess, setting the right mindset or, or framing for the for the group in order to make that good decision? That's a really interesting question. I mean, there's a lot in it. The role of the leader definitely is exceptional in the group. Um, however, when I'm when I'm working with groups, I'm working with the whole group. I'm mm-hmm. there, you know, I'm sponsored by the leader, but I'm working with the entire group. And one of the one of the um, common kind of dysfunctions that I see around group decision making is a group's feeling that they're dependent on the leader uh, mm. when making, when contributing fully to the decision and taking, you know, actually really embodying the responsibility for the group decision. So if, if a group feels like it's dependent on the leader, group members aren't as likely to be honest about their differing points of view. And if they're not being honest about their differing points of view, then not all of the information is out on the table. And it's hard for anyone in the room to make the best decision. So, yeah. So we we started off talking about all the negative things about why this is hard. Let's 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 go to a happy place, and then we can come back and talk about problems that <laughs> overcome. Um, so the happy place is you get groups of people together in theory because there's value in doing so. So yeah. before we go into all the problems, uh, what, what's good about getting a group together? Let's talk about what the, the, the positive experience we're hoping to get out of it. Okay. Well, I, I have to say that I'm a, I am a massive fan of group decision making, and that's the other reason why I was attracted to this topic. Um, it's it really, it is the best thing going. If you can, you know, if you can really kind of get all of the potential out of it, there's nothing better. It's really, it, it makes for the best quality decisions and it makes for the most resilient and resourceful teams um, at the same time. So what's good about um, group decision-making is the quality of a decision itself is enhanced by the consideration of multiple viewpoints. So more information on the table rather than less. And groups really help with that because individual members bring different perspectives and they bring different kinds of perspectives. So some of it is like factual data information, but some of it is different emotional responses. And since the very best decisions balance both the emotional and the logical and the kind of informational, um, you know, you can get those different perspectives from groups much better than you can if you were trying to make the decision solo. So the other thing that makes group decision-making the best thing ever <laughs> is um, that if a group is properly engaging in the decision that's made, mm-hmm. they are so much more likely to follow through on it, to give it that discretionary effort to actually execute the decision well, get the thing done, do what yeah. we said we were going to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean agreement, right? That's no. just, it, it, when you say engagement, it's um, just being part of the process. It's the full-blooded involvement in trying to help the group come to the best decision. So it doesn't necessarily mean agreeing with the decision that's ultimately made, but it's the kind of unfiltered sharing 
during the process of making the decision of your different point of view, your perspective in the mix, mm-hmm. and then understanding the decision that is eventually made in the context of your point of view having been considered and understanding why your point of view wasn't the thing that ruled the day, but nonetheless, you get the, you get the context for the decision because of that full-blooded you know, engagement mm-hmm. in the process. So I think Lily and I, I think it's safe to say that for both of us, we've been through this any number of times. We probably think we're good at it and we think we're uh, leading people well. Uh, (laughs) Whether we're actually good is another matter entirely. So what are the the common mistakes you see people and groups making? Let's just start with a, a general overview. What kind of things stop us from getting to that that positive realization? Yeah, to get into the best possible quality of decisions together as a group, um, the kinds of things that can get in the way are um, different kinds of assumptions. So a classic assumption is that the individuals in the group are not responsible for the decision that the group makes. So this mm-hmm. is a really common phenomenon that I see. It's, it's that phenomenon of somebody holding back um, and, and, and not engaging in this full-blooded way that I'm talking about. And instead, sort of hanging back, letting somebody else or others make the decision. And then, in a way, it's a way of hiding within the group mm-hmm. and allowing yourself an out so that you could say afterwards, well, I didn't make that decision. You know, the group did. I didn't really agree with it at the time, whatever. So that kind of lack of accountability for the decision um, makes a massive difference in somebody's engagement in the decision itself and then the quality of the decision on the other side. And, of course, also this idea of following through on it. So that's a big one. Another big one is, especially when we're making decisions in groups that are full of like-minded people, um, groupthink, that old phrase groupthink that's been around since the 70s, um, it's still a really big issue. It's like people mm. don't look enough for differing points of view. They don't sort of mine the potential of differing points of view enough. Um, and they and they tend to want to privilege harmony over really understanding everything that should go into the decision. So that's another very common thing. And there could be all sorts of reasons why people want to privilege harmony. It could be they have a really, really kind of autocratic boss, you know, somebody who punishes them when they Mm. um, raise a point of view that's different. Or it could be that they just, you know, they're afraid to disagree. They really like these people and they don't want to cause offense or harm. So that's another really, really, really common one. One of the other ones you've mentioned in your talk was this fight response, um, which I thought was really interesting about this kind of natural inclination to sort of go on the defense or on the attack or or even on the defensive. But but where does this come from? What kind of, I I mean, I recognize it in, um, in conversations and in, in work that I've, I've been involved in, but what is it in ourselves that makes us want to, to fight occasionally? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think what's in it is our, um, our deep ancestral need to focus on threat 
more mm. than positive opportunities. So in order to survive on the savanna, we had to be scanning that environment constantly for a change in pattern. Um, and whenever we saw that change in pattern, we interpreted it as threat because it probably was, <laughs> you know, it probably yeah. was the saber-toothed tiger instead of the savanna grasses waving in the breeze. Um, and so, and that helped our ancestors survive. That instinct to interpret difference as threat helped us to survive. And it's a hard, it's hard to drop that. It's hard to drop that now. So I think um, it's just, a, uh, it's, it's pretty hardwired and that's why we see it so frequently. Um, and I think you have to take, I mean, everybody, it's, it, it's funny that you say that, Lily, because so many people go, oh, I recognize that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's because it's so common. And I believe that um, one of the most effective things you can do to kind of counter that instinct, that strong instinct, is to catch yourself as much as you can and just ask the question, if we weren't concerned about this threat, what would we be focusing on? Just for a yeah. minute, you know, we can go back to the threat and, you know, because sometimes the threat is real. Sometimes people are out to get us. You know? <laughs> I don't want to say that we're always being paranoid because we're not always being paranoid. There sometimes are some really unpleasant threats out there. But um, I think when you ask the question, okay, if this weren't an issue for us, if we weren't focusing on it, what would we be focusing on? suddenly you're opening up a whole set of other possibilities can really change your perspective or it can at least check that you're focusing on the right things. Yeah. So, so it's kind of like being able to, to understand when you're going, when you're, when you're kind of being on the attack or being on the defensive and saying, right, if I just stop worrying about this, how, how am I going to behave instead? Exactly. Exactly. If I were, if I, you know, let's just play it out as a thought exercise. If we weren't yeah. worried about this threat, what would we be doing? What would we be spending our time talking about? What would we be putting our resources into? What would we be, yeah, pursuing? Mm -hmm. You also talked about kind of the diametric opposite of this, uh, or at least the illusion of it, where everyone's getting along and everything seems like it's all right, but maybe it's not. Yeah, so this is something that I experienced as a leader at the BBC. I had just the loveliest <laughs> group of people, um, you know, working to me, you know. So my top team were just, oh, my goodness, you could not get a better group of people. They were really, really great. And we all kind of went through, had gone through in our past a few traumatic experiences together. So we, we really enjoyed the harmony that we had, you know. We really liked each other's company. Um but what happened was that that enjoyment in each other's company and the kind of we we were a refuge to each other, to be fair. And, you know, in the uh, in the otherwise sometimes fight response um, you know, <laughs> that we were having with the rest with other parts of the organization. So when um, it came to decisions that we needed to make together, we were reluctant to disagree. And it meant that often we would circle around and around. That's a really good sign of it. Usually if you're circling around to the same decisions over and over again, you're discussing them again. You're like, why is this on the agenda again? Why can't we get anywhere with this? It's because somebody is holding out. People are not actually saying what they really think more often than not. So that's, yeah. So Randa, you're bringing up this idea of artificial harmony. Mm -hmm. it's, um, I, um, that phrase, that phrasing and that, um, and that concept that I recognized as soon as I read it, 
comes from the leadership writer uh, Patrick Lencioni, um, and he talks about um, uh, artificial harmony when what actually should be happening is something that I like to call, it's just taking his idea one step further, productive ideological conflict. So you don't want to be disagreeing with, you, you want to be disagreeing about the ideas. You don't mm-hmm. want to be attacking the person who's expressing the ideas. So the opposite extreme from artificial harmony is, um, is destructive personal attacks. Yeah. Mm. I know exactly. So that you don't want to go that far, but you want to get competent at dealing with conflict. You want to get competent at dealing with differing points of view when the differing points of view, of view are about the ideas. So if you have a, a team that are, you, you know, very much stuck in this kind of artificial harmony state, how do you, how do you kind of coach them to, to move out of this? That's a great question. The most important thing you can do, and this can be true of the team's leader or just a team or a team member, the most important thing that you can do is say, hold on a second, I think I heard a different point of view. Let's just explore whether there are different points of view in the room. So just call it, you know, just call right. it. Just say like, oh, we might learn something, you know, phrase it in the positive, frame it as something that is right and normal to do. Um. Because it is, you you know, you have a shared goal in a group to get the best outcome. And Mm -hmm. um, in order to do that, you know, it's the right and positive thing to do. So in the group that I led, when we discovered that this was an issue for us, we actually started to get really good. We contracted with each other. We said, okay, we are going to prioritize um, actually discussing this stuff over a kind of feeling of immediate relief of tension, you know. And then we started saying, hey, you know, we started, we started saying to each other, um, let's mine the conflict. You know, if you notice, like, look for conflict. If you notice it, say, hey, I found a conflict. Yay. You know, <laughs> I heard this person say this and I heard this person say that. And that's different. Let's explore, you know. Um, so we did actually get quite a bit better at it. It was good. It was really and it was such a boost to our feeling of competence together as a group. I can feel this. Uh, we we used to have this thing, fail cake of like, you know, when you <laughs> admitting to your failure and then uh, someone would buy cake. I think you had to buy cake for everyone else. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> then, so good. The new one that. is going to be conflict cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that's really good. Conflict cake, I love it. I'm going to adopt that now. <laughs> So uh, I think there's a couple of pieces of, uh, of classic British pop culture, uh, television culture that might really illustrate these two extremes of the destructive personal attacks and the artificial harmony. And I'm curious if the one, if you're familiar and two, if they resonate. Uh, so the artificial harmony, uh, I'm going to go with W1A, the, the series about uh, what it's like to be working at the BBC. Oh and God, just it's so painful for me. <laughs> <laughs> And then the opposite, the destructive personal attacks. Again, a, a classic British uh, show is uh, The Thick of It. Oh, yeah. Where they just yeah. yell at each other. It, it, are those reasonably good approximations of those oh, two? two I think those are brilliant. I think those are absolutely brilliant, Randy. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. Yeah. yeah this, <laughs> my one superpower is finding TV shows to reference uh, various content. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> oh, 
take it. It's a great superpower to have. Okay, so so going but going from where you were with this, uh, you were talking about this is conflict amongst individuals most of the time, and at the individual level, and then it sounds like there's an even more complicated version of where you get factions. Yeah, coalitions is another another issue. So um, I see this uh, happening in the groups that I coach a lot. It's a natural human tendency. We we have affinities with certain people and less so with others. Um, and that can, and sometimes our jobs are more similar to some people and less similar to others. Sometimes even within a team, we've got different stakeholders and we're more likely to be in kind of aligned with the other team members who have similar stakeholders or the same stakeholders that we do than we are with the others in the team. So there are all sorts of reasons or we're co-located with some people. Mm. There are all sorts of, of reasons why we might um, be more kind of naturally aligned with some than others. Um, and this doesn't have to be a problem, but what can often happen is that we're not conscious of the impact that it's having in the group. And it's, it's making us sort of forge these um, power blocks is really the best way to describe them um, that can skew the conversation. So yeah, so coalitions is another way that group dynamics can um, can come into play to keep us from making the highest quality decisions we can as a group. When you're coming into to, to these groups and you're coming in as a coach, as an outside person, you have to diagnose these things fairly quickly. And I can understand diagnosing an individual behavior uh, pretty quickly, but uncovering coalitions, that sounds hard. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the way that I approach the group coaching is I let the team diagnose it themselves. Mm. So um, I, what I'm there to do is hold a mirror up and uh, say what I see. Um, I, I usually start my, my team coaching engagements by having one-to-one conversations with each individual member and then playing back what I've heard from everybody. That's a way of holding up the mirror as well. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's, it, tends to be, it tends to be pretty self-evident pretty quickly, to be honest with you. And people often know, it's funny, they'll often admit it to me in a one-to-one conversation, but they won't have been talking about it in a group. Mm. So that's the thing. And as, as ever, my, my big theme around all of this stuff is the more that you can raise to the level of awareness, the less power it has. And the more you can make high quality decisions because you're not letting it sneak around in the dark. You know? You're not letting it undermine you without you knowing. So yeah, so just holding up that mirror saying like, okay, so this is interesting. You people have said that you have this way of approaching the problem. And this group has said that they have another. What do you make of it? Have you ever talked about it together? Oh, no, you know, I haven't. Okay. You know, that, that kind of thing. Raising it into the open is a big part of it. So have you ever come across a team that have nailed all of these things? Of course not. We're all human. It's all messy. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, God. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. No, it's but I have come across teams happily who have been really um oh, what would be a good word for it? Like enriched by the experience of grappling with these issues. 
and have made significant positive changes to get better and better at it. And there's nothing better than to see that. It's such a, a rewarding thing for the team itself and also for me, obviously, as a coach, it's a great experience to have. And, it, and it's just brilliant to see that happen. So people, you know, even I have to say in the team that I led that I was describing, where we, we, we went from a, a situation where we had a lot of artificial harmony to be, you know, to exercising those conflict muscles. It was so gratifying. And we really kind of were stronger together as a result of knowing that we could go through that conflict and come out the other side. So, um yeah, I think I think it's all about it's all about the aspiration and the struggle and the and the striving. It's the process. Yeah. And presumably every time you get another group together, you kind of have to start again. What what do you mean by that? Because new dynamics form. So even if you kind of ah, yes, develop the skills with one group, if you take one person out and add one in or, you know, whatever, then I, I guess you're kind of, uh, yeah, you're back to reviewing and, and checking in on all of these different um, elements to make sure that, that nothing's crept in. Well, so that's a really interesting um, perspective. I guess I see that, yes, if there's, you know, there is that there. I want to I want to address that point in a couple of different ways. One is that um, for many of us, our workplaces are changing very rapidly, and we're working with one group at one point and another group at another point at another point. Um, and so, whatever gains we've made in terms of uh, you know working well with ideological conflict in one group, we may find isn't naturally happening in another. But the thing is that you, then that's where the individual really comes in because we are transmitter of memes, you know? So we can take that experience that we've had in one group and said, you know, I found this really useful and can I introduce this here? So that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing that I would say is for those groups that actually do have a bit more stability in them, which, you know, still happens in this day and age, there are people that work together for several years um, if one person leaves and another person comes in, usually there's something around the group norm that creates a culture in and of itself that that person usually both is absorbed into and integrated into, but also changes. So it tends to be a more incremental change. But I've even gone so far, like the group that I led at the BBC and, and some of the groups that I coach, some of the teams that I coach, um, we've actually had a bit of, you know, a, a contract together. We've created a contract for working together. And that's the kind of thing that you can actually introduce to the new person. You know, when they're coming in, you can say, hey, this is how we've decided to work. Do you want to, what do you think? Do you, would you add anything? Does this feel right to you? Does, you know, this is how we like to work. So is that like a, a written document or? Yeah. So we did, um, I've had teams deal with it in a bunch of different ways. Uh, one way that I've seen that's been really successful is, a sort of, it was written originally and when the group came up with it, but then it just became part of um, the ritual. Okay. So, you know, the, there would be a ritual in team meetings where people would say, okay, like, for example, a team ritual around ending every meeting by saying what worked well and what would have been even better if. Yeah. So it's almost like doing a mini retro right in the meeting. 
Right. And that's, that's why I was going to ask that is a lot of the things you're talking about sound like they're part of the normal agile ceremonies of retros and the things you go through in uh, the early stages of putting together a team of forming and norming. Is it uh, obviously it's different in some aspects, but is it really just an evolution of those techniques or is it something different? I don't think it's something different. I think these are different ways of applying knowledge of group psychology, actually, to the problems that we face in or the challenges or the opportunities, whichever way you want to frame it, that we face in being a group of very discrete, very you know different individuals trying to come together to work toward a common goal. So I think they're all ways of reinforcing the same ideas. I, I tend to find that in leadership groups in particular, there's a lot less of using the, the agile rituals. Um, and so that, you know, it's a way of reminding people that even at the leadership level, when they're meeting together with other leaders, either as a leader of that group or as a, you know, a member of that group, that these things are still really important and that there's a reason why they're enshrined in ritual and other aspects of the organization, other parts of the organization. And we're all going through uh, a period right now where we're working in different ways than we may have been used to. Everyone's working, uh, at least at the moment, we're in the middle of lockdown here in the UK and a a lot of the other places uh, that our listeners are. Um, And so we're not able to be together. And some of the ways that we do these things have to change. Is some of this harder, some of this easier? Is some of this absolutely impossible to do uh, when you're not together in the same room? Um, I don't think it's absolutely impossible to do any of this together in the same room uh, when you're not together in the same room. Um, I wouldn't, I would never say impossible about that. I think there are lots of things, however, um, about this period of time that we're going through that we have to acknowledge, make things hard, you know, um, things like uncertainty in the business, things like uncertainty in our personal lives. You know, those of us who have family members who are ill and unable to get medical treatment, either because they have, you know, the coronavirus, the COVID um, virus, or because they, you know, are ill in other ways and can't, you know. So there, there, there's economic insecurity, there's job security issues. So I think it's really, really, really important. That's another another time for me to bang the same drum around um, recognizing what's going on for people and raising awareness about what's going on for us. So at the best, I believe that teams can take this difficult situation and use it as an opportunity to um, to learn in a really deep way about how to work together better and better. Um, and I think you can do that in several ways, you know, several different ways. One is if you're a group, the group's leader, um, you can remember that in times of crisis, it's even more important to get rid of hierarchy. It's even more important to mm. um, admit when you don't know something and to ask for others' points of view and, and, and get that, you know, that valuable, diverse set of inputs from everybody around. Um, and I think there's other things, too. I think, um, you know, in a way, lowering our expectations of ourselves as individuals, being compassionate with ourselves, but also being compassionate to our groups, you know. There's mm-hmm. going to be more... Um, potential for 
unproductive friction. There's going to be more potential for people kind of retrenching to their safe relationships with their coalitions, you know? Um, and I think we need a measure of patience with ourselves and with other people that that may be what we're doing, but we also need a little bit of um, courage to call it when we see it and to, um, and to, put out a vision of aspiration for how we want to be together during this time, um, which can go a long way. And then also <laughs> I would say, um, you know, it's almost groups that actually make decisions really well together may need to, for a time being, kind of lower their expectations for the level and complexity of decision that they can usefully make together. You might need to get a little bit more practical and tactical for a bit just regain their kind of confidence and their stride. Um, anyway, those are some of the thoughts that I have about how uh, the way that we're working, well, the time that we're in more than yeah. the remote working um, can really affect what we're doing. With remote working, super important to pay attention to all of the soft skills around being in a group, even more than, mm. you know, than normal. So... So if you were listening to this podcast and thinking, yeah, I really need to get better at like group decision making or my group needs to, <laughs> how would, how would you, um, how do you start? Where do you, what do you kick off with? Is there like an analysis that you do? What's your kind of starter for 10? So yeah. How do you get started? That's a great question. I will put in a little plug for a conference talk that I've done for leading design um, called The Six Dirty Little Secrets of Group Decision-Making. Um, and it outlines many of the ones that we've just talked about tonight. And the first thing I would say is to just simply ask yourself, is the group that I'm in, you know, vulnerable to any of these kind of group dynamics or assumptions? And if your answer is yes to any of them, then just simply be brave and bring it up with the group. Just say, hey, you know, I'd love to talk about this. It seems to me that, I don't know, you know, we're all very similar in the way that we see things. Are we missing out on an important perspective? Discuss, you know, I'm open to anything. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite one is to start a good discussion about getting better at being in conflict in productive ideological conflict is to take a, uh, a spectrum that Patrick Lencioni draws uh, between artificial harmony and, and, you know, destructive personal conflict. Um, and he draws it in such a way that you can see that the ideal place for a team to be is opposite the center point between those two poles. And putting that image in front of a group and saying, where do you think we typically sit on the spectrum? <laughs> you know, is a great conversation starter. And it, it, it's like after you've had that conversation, even once, you can't go back to thinking it might not be an issue, you know? Yeah. So, um, so it just raises your awareness and suddenly you're better at it because you see it. Cool. So, so I think just asking simple open questions about any dysfunctions around that, that you might think you have is a great way to start. Awesome. Julia, it's been so lovely talking to you and I feel like we could, uh, carry on a lot longer but um uh, we should probably let you go to bed <laughs> this has been such a pleasure thank you so much thank you for inviting me and for having such a lovely chat with me
really interesting tips from Julia there, and oof, a whole lot to think about. Now, don't forget to check out all the World Product Day activities. And don't forget to like and subscribe. See y'all next time. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and... Me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.